I want to start off this morning with a section of a famous hymn written by Charles Wesley. Let's read the first verse together. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child, pity my simplicity, suffer me to come to thee. Now, I've got a question for you. Is it true? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Or is it not? Is Jesus meek and mild or is he not? Yes. That's the answer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, this uh, text from uh, Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is a prophecy written 800 years before Jesus came. We know that. You have to grapple with that. Even if you're, if you're not a Christian here today, you just need to know that there's some prophets in the Old Testament that know a whole lot of stuff about the future, and you've got to ask the question, how do they even know that? This is a uh, prophecy about Jesus himself. It's about Easter. And it kind of sounds like Jesus is a bit out of control, doesn't it? I mean, there's a side to the uh, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, where you just kind of go, why does he just get pushed around? Is that the kind of person that Jesus is, that he just ends up in this Easter thing and he gets pushed around and he gets bullied by people? Is that, what, is that what's actually going, going on here? But I want you to notice in that Isaiah 53 verse 7 verse up there, it's, it's not actually saying that Jesus is being bullied like a lamb by people that are stronger than him. It's actually saying he's like a lamb in that he doesn't protest. You see that? It's, a, it's actually about the words. It's actually what he's saying at that point in time. You know, it's the biggest injustice in the whole of human history and he's not protesting. That's what Isaiah 53 verse 7 is. It's not Jesus being bullied. It's Jesus not protesting. Listen to this from 1 Peter 2 verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So let me ask you again. Is Jesus meek and mild? (laughs) You know, let let me just sharpen the answer for you. Yes. Everyone who said, yes, Jesus is meek and mild, yes, he is. The reason why is because Jesus is whatever he decides he wants to be. He does whatever he wants to do, right? He just does whatever he wants to do. Jesus is deliberate and intentional. Is Jesus meek and mild at times? Yeah. Can you trust Jesus with your kids? Totally. (laughs) Totally you can. But who knows he can also be fierce. He can be fierce as well. He does as he pleases, doesn't he? So when he determines to be meek and mild, and there is part of God's character that is meek and mild, he will be meek and mild. And when it's time to be fierce, he'll be fierce. He does as he pleases. This is straight out of Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. See, God is the only being that exists that can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. (laughs) And 
the, your next question after that, you just kind of go, man, if he has got absolute power, which people in democracy struggle with, right? You just kind of go, oh, we're all meant to have a vote. Well, you don't get a vote, right? God's in charge. That's the way it rolls. You just don't get a vote. So how do I know it's going to be okay? Well, you know, the, the, the only thing that governs the way that someone operates who has absolute power and isn't actually restricted by anything is their character. True? Because they will always operate in line with who they are. So your question has got to be, what kind of person is God? Is he good? Absolutely. So, and he's absolutely good, right? So can you trust him with absolute power? I mean, you heard from Linda before. Absolutely you can. And there's many of us here who have learned that, right? You've learned to trust and submit to him. And you don't have to be worried about that. You don't have to be worried about the fact that he does whatever pleases him because everything that he pleases to do is good. So Jesus gets to the passion in John's gospel and what does he do? Well, he kind of does the same thing he's always been doing. (laughs) What he pleases and what's right and what God's will is. He just goes and he gets about it. So I'd I'd invite you now to to turn to John chapter 18. We're just going to read verse 1 to 11. John chapter 18, verse 1 to 11. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his... So this, you remember before that, if you know John's Gospel, it's a high priestly prayer, right? So the beginning of chapter 18 is the follow-on from that prayer. He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden, Garden of Gethsemane. And the actual word, in some ways, ironically, Gethsemane actually means olive press. That's what it means. I mean, you'd, is, is that not what's actually going on? There's going to be a press and there's going to be pressure that's actually going to happen in that garden. Which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So you've got Judas Iscariot and he's... He just knows the hangouts, right? He's been in Jesus' band for the last three years and he knows where they hang out, all right? So Judas, this is verse 3, having procured a band of soldiers. Now the suggestion here is that this, um, this detachment of soldiers could have been anywhere between 200 and 1,000 soldiers that Judas organised, all right? And some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So that's like... For young people, that's like old school flashlight on your phone, right? They're going at night time, they need to see where they're going, we've got to take some flames. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. It's like, didn't we just do this? Uh, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that, had been, that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me you know the scene here really it, you know one commentator suggests that Judas probably got his crew and probably went back to the last supper first <laughs> to 
because he thought that might be where Jesus is and then okay well where's the next place we're going to go well he's probably going to be in the garden so we'll just go to the garden we'll catch up with him there for sure and what you actually find is you've got this band of people coming to Jesus and Jesus moving toward them being very very intentional here's the first thing I want to look at today intentional Jesus you notice this mob comes up to him they come up to him to arrest him who's the one taking the initiative Jesus, all right? He's the one taking the initiative. He came forward and said, who do you want? I mean, this is classic in Australian lingo. This is classic grab the ball by the horns, isn't it? It's like there's a really difficult, hard thing coming up and you, rather than freezing or kind of stepping back or just going passive and trying to avoid the situation, Jesus goes, all right, I'm going to step right into this. I'm going to step right in. And one thing you need to know is that Jesus is always intentional. He does things on purpose. He's deliberate about things that he's doing. He's actually never caught off guard, never surprised, never has to revert to plan B. He knows what he is doing and he's doing what's been planned. They could have killed him earlier. You you remember some of those passages in the Gospels? They could have actually killed him earlier. You know, this is uh, John chapter 10. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. You know, they tried to kill him there. Luke chapter 4. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Do you think Jesus could have found somewhere to hang out with the disciples where he wouldn't get arrested? It's the go-to place, right? That's where he's gone. He's gone to the go-to place. Maybe Judas went to the Last Supper first and then they're going, yeah, he's going to be in the garden for sure. Jesus is not hiding out somewhere. He hasn't gone to the government and found some kind of disguise that he can get around. He hasn't got his name changed. It's like, no, he's gone to the place that Judas knows that he goes to and even when they come to him, he's not even holding back at that point. He's stepping in and he's going, who do you want? Who do you want? You know, grabbing the bull by the horns, you know what it actually means, that saying? It means to deal with a difficult situation in a really direct way. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's stepping right in. Let's cut the rubbish, Judas, and just get on with it. All right? What's going on here? Let's stop playing silly games and let's get on with it. You know, even think about the shame of being arrested. I mean, that's shameful, right, to get arrested. And Jesus is going, I don't care about that. I'm stepping in. This is God's plan. This is what God's up to. Now, some of you might go, well, what about the stuff in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, where Jesus is wrestling with the Father? And and I would say to you, absolutely. I'm not denying that in any sense. But what you're seeing here is Jesus going, this is what we're doing. This is what the Father and I are doing. We're going to step right into that. The greatest suffering in the world is coming. He knows about it and he walks toward it. He takes the initiative. And I want to ask you this morning, what does that mean for you? Do you know one of the things it means for you? Nothing is new for God about what's going on in your life. He knows about all of it. And I've said here in church before, why doesn't God have to count the number of hairs on your head? Because if he has to count it, it means he didn't know it at some point in time. God just instantly knows everything that's going to happen. 
everything that possibly could happen and everything that has happened and everything that is happening. He knows everything. Nothing that you face is a surprise to God. He knows it and he walks with you into it. And you can walk into it too, like Jesus, because God's with you. Because he walked into it and he's with you, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, you can too. You see that? You just can. You know, Jesus is never reactive. He's always intentional, he's always proactive. He knows what was going to be happening to him and he knows what's going to happen to you. And he's deliberate and he's never caught off guard by what happened to him or what's going to happen to you or what's happening to you. And Jesus will be, I want you to hear me this morning, he will be intentional about your life. See, nothing that happens to you is ultimately random. Do you believe that? Proverbs 16 verse 33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the the Lord. Now there, people make choices... And there's some kind, some kind of free will that people have, and I'll just put that in inverted commas because I think it's weird since sin comes into the world to talk about free will. There's some kind of version of it, but it's not the same one that Adam and Eve had before sin came into the world. But regardless of all of that reality happening, God is steering the universe. If, if you can roll the dice and every decision of the dice comes from the Lord, that means that every single thing that you go through is being hijacked and steered exactly where God wants it to go in your life. Now, Romans 8.28 says what? Can anyone recite that for me? Okay. For all things, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Right? The same chapter in Romans 8, right? Because... Part of the difficulty with this verse is that it gets used in a really cheesy way by Christians all the time. And it's kind of like you just seem to suck it up because everything's going to be good in the end anyway and so it's not supposed to hurt as much. You just go, well, I'm pretty sure it still does. The interesting thing about that verse is it shows up less than 10 verses before this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Listen to this. this is not, not many people preach on this one. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. When you hear Romans 8.28, you've got to think about the early church being persecuted and people being executed for being a Christian. It's not some cheesy, flowery thing that's meant to give you a pick, pick you up for like five minutes in the morning before you go to work because someone just texted it through and, you know... Now, it is true in all of those situations as well, but you just seem to know the context is a very gritty context. Listen to the guy that actually wrote it. This is 2 Corinthians 11. This is the guy who wrote it. This is Paul, right? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and that's not with marijuana. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure of me 
on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Like you look at that stuff, you go, that looks really loose, right? That looks like there's just a whole bunch of stuff going, going on that's out of control. It looks like God doesn't know what he's doing. It looks out of control. But here's the bottom line, folks. If the most heinous evil, the condemnation and execution of the Son of God, if the most heinous evil thing that has ever happened in the world is under the intentional rule of God, then you can relax. Can't you? You can relax. Everything else is too. Everything else is too. Authoritative Jesus. John 18 verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus does not give his life up as a pathetic martyr He's getting bullied to his death. He offers up his life in obedience to his dad. If you've got your Bible open there, have a look at verse 5, verse 6, verse 8. Do you know what Jesus does? He calls himself, I am. That's what he does. Do you know what that is? That's like you're going home and your house is on fire, right? And you go into the shed and you grab a jerry can filled with petrol and you just go... Let's just put this on. That's going to put it out, right? And it, just, it goes even more. You see, right in the middle of it, what's Jesus doing? They come to arrest him and he's, going, he's just pushing it even further. He's going, I'm God. I'm God. And, and they end up killing him for it. Killing him for that blasphemy. And he's done it before, right? You can go back to John 8, 58 and 59. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did he hide himself this time? Because it wasn't time yet. It wasn't time according to God's plan for it to all come down. It is now in the garden, right? And he leans in. What happens? He says, I am. Well, they fall down. (laughs) So he asks them again, who do you seek? And he kind of says, I told you, I'm the guy, all right? And it's like, what, what is, well, he's not like this, right? But if it was me, I'd be going, what is wrong with you people? I just told you this, all right? I have to repeat myself all the time. He's a tower of a figure, isn't he? You know, this is not doormat humility. If you think humility is being a doormat, th- this is not Jesus being a doormat. This is Jesus being very intentional. See, humility ultimately isn't just giving way to someone else so they can do whatever they want. It's actually putting Jesus in the centre of your life and not self. That's humility. And who arrests him? Jew and Gentile. You see that? It wasn't just the Jews. I read this in a, in a commentary this week. They said the fact that it was the Jews and the Romans that arrest Jesus implicates the whole world in the crime against Jesus it makes everyone guilty now track back with me for a minute there's somewhere between 200 and a thousand troops maybe 11 disciples in Jesus here's my question was Jesus in the minority now you got to be careful when you think about that was he in the minority 
he wasn't right maybe if you just did simple maths at that point in time but if you think about the colossus that is jesus and all of the angels that that god has created is he in the minority he's on this tiny planet in this multiple universes that he's created i reckon and this whether this is what i was taught or whether i just the perception i grew up with i grew up in the church with a bit of a persecuted minority complex and i reckon there's quite a few christians out there like that right it's like it's like oh we're just the there's only five percent of us in australia and we're kind of the minority and we don't get to have much say in the place but at least we're right does anyone know what i'm talking about we're the right ones you know and it, it, it's, it works for Australians right because we love the under, underdog thing and it's like you're, I mean the fact that there's we're only maybe five percent are actually active Christians in Australia it's like in Australian kind of legend it's like man that well you're almost certainly right at that point right you're rebelling against the other 95 percent get the thought out of your head that you're a persecuted minority now, in terms of numbers, human to human, we're probably a minority in Australia. And, and do Christians get persecuted? Absolutely. But do we need to have a mentality that we are a persecuted minority? Is our only thing that we just say, well, at least we're right? Because people just get saved all over the place when you see that. When you say that, have you noticed that? It's like, yeah, no, look, there's not many of us, but we're right. And everyone goes, oh, we want to come and be right like you. That's going to be great. doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen. You know that story about Elisha in the Old Testament, right? 2 Kings 6, verse 8 to 19. I'm not going to read it all, but basically the king of Syria is warring against Israel and basically the bottom line is Elisha the prophet, God speaks to him and tells the king of Israel um, what, um, what's going to happen next, right? And so the king of Syria goes, righto, I've got a, I've got a mole here in my organisation. There's someone who's a turncoat and they, they keep... Tell him, the king of Israel, what's going on. And then someone says, no, it's actually this guy who's a prophet down there. God keeps telling him what's going on. And so here's what happens. They say, this is verse 14. So he sent there to this, to this prophet, to Elisha. He sent there horses and chariots and a great army and they came one night and surrounded the city. As a servant of Elisha gets up in the morning, sees this great army and just minority and mathematically minority, right? Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. <laughs> you can be in the minority and not be that's what this is so my question for you this morning is have you got a persecuted minority mindset that's my question because jesus is a colossus in this story isn't he and he's striding through this and for all money it looks like he's one man all alone but he's actually god incarnate and he's going to do something absolutely mind-blowingly incredible and he's going to show that he is the majority. Like you be with him, you stick with him, you're in the majority. That's just how it works. 
even when they're plotting to kill him, he's still the strong one. You know, you see him and you kind of go, it looks weak, but there's this weird strength that's actually going on. You know, persecution's going to come, but that doesn't mean that you're weak. You know, think about the, uh, for those of you who know it, I was going to read it today, but I didn't want to go into heaps of detail because of the kids that are in today, but the story of Stephen, you know, in, in Acts 7 where he gets executed for following Jesus. Like you look at him, you just go, he just does not have a persecuted minority mindset. Like if you read, and folks, I'll just encourage you, go home and read Acts chapter 7. He's another one, like Jesus, who goes and gets the jerry can out and throws more petrol on it. He tells them where they're all wrong, how they executed Jesus and basically implicates him for a whole bunch of stuff and then they kill him. And even when they're killing him, there's a power to him, even as he's being put to death. It's the last one for this morning. Sacrificial Jesus. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus sacrificed himself for their safety. So Jesus' actions as a substitute, he just does that kind of stuff regularly. (laughs) It's not just on the cross, right? It's like, you want me? Is it? I'm the one that you want, let these guys go. What's he doing? Take me, let him go. Let him go free. You see, what Jesus does in the garden, he does with his whole life. He puts himself in the place where other people ought to be often and lets people go free. John 17, 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. John 3, 14 to 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should get off scot-free. True? Should get off scot-free. What's he doing? It's the same thing that he does. He, he, He says, take me, let them go. Isn't that what Jesus does to you? And if you don't love Jesus today, you just need to know he's done it for you too. (laughs) He says, take me, put me to death, let him go, let her go, let her off. I'll bear the punishment for them. Jesus gives his life, you get saved. That's how it works. And you can see it actually happening here in the garden. Jesus gets taken out, we get saved. It's all over everything that he does. It's all over everything. It's the way, the Trinity, actually. Self-giving, selflessness. Blessing other people, being gracious to other people. What about this one? This is Romans 8, 31 to 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's the bottom line, folks. 
your salvation is secured because Jesus took the hit and let you go free. And God's grace for the rest of your days is secured. That's what Romans 8, 31 to 32 says. Like if he actually said, take me, let them go, it means for the rest of your life, every other grace that you get from him is smaller and easier for him to give to you. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that Romans 8 is saying. Like, okay, so you got that? You got saved by him? He gave up his life for you? Why would you think he'd be stingy after that? Like that's the most expensive thing. Do you ever worry about God keeping you? Blowing it so bad that you drop out. You sin too much. I once heard a, uh, a doctor talk about, he's a doctor and a, a part-time pastor, and he talked about how there were some sins that you just can't be forgiven for. And he'd been involved in some abortions. Is that you? Do you just, do you just kind of think, man, it's just, oh, I stepped over the line. I've gone too far. Too far to be rescued by Jesus. Have you, have you failed too often in the same thing? It's like how many times do you have to fail at the same thing <laughs> before you just run out of chances? Like you're just out, right? Like God's going, that's it. Sorry, man. We got to three and a half million and you just went one over. I'm sorry. That's the end. There's no more. I want to say to you this morning, folks, that Jesus will keep you. He will keep you. We here at the Project believe really clearly that God keeps people that he saves. He keeps them and he cares for them. And it's not so that you can take your foot off the accelerator in following him. It's so that you can keep going hard at it. It's not like he keeps me so I can do nothing. See, if you're actually truly saved and loved by Jesus and in his family, that is not the way someone in his family operates. You may not even be a Christian if you think you can just take your foot off the accelerator. You keep going, right? You know, I just think it's the weirdest family ever if you go in and out of the family based on your performance. It's like if my kids sin and they do the same thing three and a half million times, well, that would be frustrating, right? But if it happened, does, like, sorry, three and a half million and one, like you're not in the family anymore. Is that not weird? That just seems really weird to me that you just all of a sudden not be in the family anymore because you just blew it one, one too many times. What if, and some of you go, what if you really blow it though? And I'd say to you, oh, like, what do you mean? So, and you go, no, like, big time blow it, right? Like, re, like colossal. Like, what happened to your brain? Have you got one? That kind of blowing it. Like denying him, you mean? Like Peter? No, you go, worse, worse. Like killing people. Just going and killing people. Like Paul, right? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Isn't that beautiful? You can't out-sin grace. 
I mean, that's what Romans says, right? It says where sin abounds, grace superabounds, all right? So you get your sin to jump really, really high. Like get your sin jumping as high and just as, as crazy and as filthy as possible and grace is always going to get higher. He's faithful. The disciples' safety in the garden here is secured by Jesus' arrest and his death, right? John 6.39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 10.27-29, and 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me. It's kind of like he's pulling authority even higher at this point. He's going, right, okay. No one can get you out of my hand, right? But here's the bottom line. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus will keep you. He'll make sure that you make it. But it doesn't mean that you stop fighting. It means that you fight more. And you don't mostly fight against other people, right? Fight against yourself. Like the whole kind of Peter lopping off the high priest's servants here, Malchus, poor old Malchus, right? It's kind of cool in one sense. You look at Malchus and you go, man, dude got his ear cut off. But it's like, but he also got to put back on. So it's like, was that cool or not? I don't know. It probably hurt in between. Jesus will keep you. We at the project use, uh, and the music team can come up now. We at the project use, um, has anyone noticed we use a lot of rewords? Like restoration groups, renovate, restore. We used to have one called recalibrate. It's like re, re. Can you just get us another prefix other than re? Like that would be cool because it's just really confusing. Do you know what um, do you know what re the prefix re really means? It means to do something again. That's what it means. And I don't know. Um, look, I'm going to give you a double re. Check that out. A redemptive redo. <laughs> you know, there was a garden that uh, God built. God made and put a man in it, put a woman in it. Uh, way back, and uh, and they blew it. They were it was the first Adam and Eve. You know, I mentioned before that some of the details about what actually happens in the garden for Jesus actually aren't included in the Gospel of John, but they're in the other Gospels. And you know, you know the way it rolls. Um, that uh, Jesus. You know, we know in John that Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's just what I've been uh, talking about. Um, we know from Matthew, Mark and Luke that there's some grappling in the Garden. But Jesus fell to his face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Do you know, we've got two gardens here. We've got the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the first Garden of Eden, 
The first man blew it. The first woman, they blew it. They just got it all wrong and it all got messed up. The true human shows up. The true image of God in man shows up and he goes to another garden. You see that? And in that garden, he actually gets tested. Like Adam and Eve got tested in the first garden. And you know, like the most awesomest thing ever is that he actually passed it. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Like imagine what happens if he fails it. We are abs- we're toast. If he doesn't pass this one, we are toast. But he goes to this garden and he says to his father the opposite thing that the first Adam said. The first Adam and Eve said, our will, not yours. And the second Adam, the one who nailed it, the one who got it right, says, your will, not mine. God always redoes things. <laughs> there are so many rewords in the Bible. And you just got to expect that God's actually going to do in your life what he's, what he's done with humanity. He's going to double back around and he's going to take you back to the thing that haunts you sometimes. Does anyone know this to be true? It's like there's stuff you just go, it's in the box, man. We're not even, we don't even talk about that. We don't think about that. I don't want to think about the thing that hurt me. I don't want to go back to that relationship. And God just kind of brings you back around, right? And he goes, I want you to go back to the scars and the wounds that you have. The stuff that you put away in the box. The place of your greatest failure. Because he's interested in you nailing it. <laughs> you see that? He's interested in you nailing it. It's not, he's not some wicked, evil torturer who just goes, yeah, got him last time, let's get him again. See, because Christ went back on behalf of humanity into the garden and got it right, we can get it right. And God can take us back to things and we can get those things right. We're going to have communion. We're going to have communion for every service during this Easter period. All right, this week, next week, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And I trust you can see the significance of it. Uh, we're taking communion today. It's, a, it's, it's bread and it's, uh, it's crushed. The, the juice of crushed fruit, all right? The, uh, remember the olive press? The Garden of Gethsemane? And it's a deliberate thing. Jesus didn't get painted into a corner. He didn't get trapped. He gave himself willingly for you. And you get to take bread and juice. And it's a sacrament, which means that the spiritual and the physical kind of intermingle with each other. And you get to, by faith, feed on Christ. And the life that he's, that he's purchased for you. So today, um, I'm actually going to, so guys, come down. I'm going to invite uh, people serving communion to stand up the front. Because I want you to be deliberate and intentional about reaching out for the life that Jesus offers. Okay? Um, don't want you to be passive today. Jesus was not passive. He was intentional and deliberate. And it's good for you to be like him. Anyone with me on that? Yeah. Let's be intentional and deliberate.